0: Welcome back to Out of the Cold, the podcast that dives deep into unsolved and solved cold cases in North Texas. I'm Deanna Boyd. So today we're exploring the unsolved 1994 murder of Megan Beth Johns, a 29-year-old brokerage firm secretary found stabbed to death inside her Irving apartment on October 5th, 1994. Now this story is heartbreaking on so many levels, and it's not just the brutality in how Megan died and that now, almost 25 years later, there's still been no arrest. It's also the fact that Megan had so many hardships she faced in her life, hardships that could have left her hardened or bitter. But instead, the description I heard over and over when talking to people who knew Megan was how kind and giving she was, what a big heart she had for kids, for people fighting addiction, Something with which she had firsthand experience. And adding to all this heartbreak is that in the wake of this horrific crime, when no arrest is made, family and friends can only theorize what happened. And in doing so, suspicion gets cast in many directions, including at Megan's own brother, leaving an already splintered family forever broken. So Megan was born to Rosemary and Donnell Johns on January 29, 1966, in Tallahassee, Florida. The second of two children for the couple, and though four and a half years separated Megan from her older brother Brian, Brian says the two were close. That
1: was my best friend in the world.
0: Tell me what she was like.
1: She was the sweetest person in the world. You're know, gonna me start crying about this. I'm sorry. This is hard, you know. But uh, take you. I was real close to I was real close to my sister, we had a real good bond. I loved my sister.
0: Their father, Dr. Donnell Johns, was an accomplished and world-renowned speech pathologist. His job would bring the family to Dallas when Megan was still in elementary school. He bought a house for the family in Oak Cliff and began what would become a successful career that would include positions at hospitals like Children's Medical Center of Dallas, Parkland Memorial Hospital, and Baylor University Medical Center. But at home, Brian says not everything was ideal.
1: We grew up with an alcoholic father, right? And, you know, he was a functioning alcoholic. He worked all his life. But when he came home, he he would get drunk and sometimes black out and do crazy stuff. And we experienced that. And that's probably what brought us real close together, especially as we got, you know,
0: we were grown. So when Donnell Johns left his wife and divorced her in 1978, Megan was devastated. She was 13 and fiercely loyal to her mother. Megan lived with her mother in Dallas and, for a while, in Ohio, where her mother's parents lived. At the time, Brian was having his own issues and admits he didn't see Megan very often. He was very rebellious by then. He'd leave the house for stretches at a time, coming back only when he felt like it. He got hard into drugs and soon the crime that often comes with it. By 1981, he was serving the first of what would be a handful of stints in prison for mostly burglary and theft. Kelly Chance had met Megan while attending summer school at Sunset High School in Dallas. The girls were three years apart, but Megan was so mature that Kelly says she didn't even realize the age difference.
2: Megan was um, probably, I guess, around 14 when I met her. And, um, you know, you one would think, you know, being a doctor's daughter, she would have had a privileged life and uh, that wasn't the the case.
0: In fact, Megan seemed kind of alone in the world and would come to see her friends as her family. Her parents had divorced, her brother was in trouble and out of the picture. And then while still in high school, her mother, the person she was closest to, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Rosemary, Megan's mother, died in July 1982. Megan was only 17. Now, losing her mother would have a profound effect on Megan, according to her friends. She moved to a small apartment in Dallas and started hanging around with a rougher crowd. Another of Megan's close childhood friends, Joy Everett, says that while Megan and her friends had previously dabbled in drugs, Megan's drinking and drug use escalated. She started using cocaine.
1: We all played around, you know, we smoked a little marijuana. Growing up and stuff like that, but not, you know, staying out of control, I think, was started after her mom passed.
0: Now, Joy says Megan was a looker. She had light brown hair, green eyes, and a beautiful body that caught the attention of plenty of men.
1: She was a model material. She, had the, she was tall. She was beautiful. She had long, beautiful legs.
0: She was gorgeous. Among those whose attention she would attract was a Texas musician. Ray Wiley Hubbard, perhaps best known for writing the song Up Against the Wall, Redneck Mother. Megan had gone to a party with intentions of being set up with another man, but instead she meets Hubbard, who was performing at the party, and they start dating. They even later live together for a time. So during this time, Brian, who was out of prison, ends up burglarizing Hubbard's home. The Dallas Morning News even did a short story on how Hubbard got back his favorite $2,000 acoustic guitar stolen in the burglary after discovering it had been pawned for 30 bucks, Brian, the story notes, had been arrested by police after he was spotted sitting in a stolen car. In the back seat was a guitar case with Hubbard's name on it. Brian is upfront front about what he did. Heck, he's the first one who brought it up to me.
1: I was on drugs, and I just knew so, it was so stupid. You know, I, I regret everything I've ever done in the past. But now I've got the Lord in my life, and um, I'm clean, and I'm doing very good. You know, you just have to, you know, do right instead of think about what you did wrong.
0: So for his crime, Brian would be sentenced to 25 years in prison. Megan's friend Kelly doesn't think Megan was pleased by the stiff sentence her brother received.
2: I think if it had been her belongings, I don't know that she would have filed the charges. So I think there was a little hurt feelings there, even though she probably knew it was the right thing and he deserved it, but she wouldn't have done that to her brother.
0: Megan's relationship with Ray would eventually end. Kelly says Megan would confide that Ray's drinking at that time was among the reasons. And she
2: told me that um, the reason things didn't work with Ray was because he was a heavy alcoholic. And uh, she said she just didn't want to see herself married to an alcoholic.
0: Perhaps it was growing up with an alcoholic father that made Megan wary. Her relationship with her father after her mother's death remained somewhat tense, though civil. Dr. Johns had remarried in 1981, and he and his second wife had a daughter named Bridget in 1985. Now, even though Megan was 20 years older than her half-sister, She was smitten. So
2: she um, was thrilled to have a little sister, and she was crazy about me.
0: Bridget remembers how her big sister would come over to visit and always take time to play with her little sister, bringing some kind of craft for them to do together. In fact, in a tin cookie can she keeps in a shed, Bridget still has the clay figurines that she and Megan once spent an afternoon molding together. There's a three-layer piece of yellow cake with chocolate icing that Megan made and a tiny fruit salad in a small bowl. And though through the years they've grown slightly misshapen, softening in the Texas heat and later hardening again in the cold, Bridget won't part with them.
2: These are 27 years old, and you can see, you know, she was really talented, and I've kept
0: them all these years. For a time, Megan would even babysit Bridget at her father's University Park house. But Bridget says that all ended after her mom once caught Megan smoking pot out by the pool. Kelly says when Megan's father realized his daughter was having addiction problems, he was less than understanding.
2: I felt like her dad uh, did not understand what Megan was going through when her mom passed away. And um, that it, that he wasn't the support system that she needed whenever she came back to Dallas. And I think he thought tough love is the route to go when he found out she was in trouble uh, with drugs herself. And, um, you know, he didn't do things to help lift her up and help build her up what she needed and what a mother would do. Uh, Instead it was, you know, well, I'll take your car and I'll do this and, you know, and it was very punitive.
0: Despite this, Kelly says Megan didn't hold it against her father. In fact, despite how unfair her life had been, Megan never seemed to dwell on these things.
2: You know, a lot of people would be bitter of their circumstances. Not Megan. Megan walked in the room with a smile and, you know, gave everybody a hug and everybody loved her. I mean, I really didn't know anybody didn't like her because Megan was just full of joy. And uh, even, even with her dad, she never said a bad word about him. Even when there were times that maybe she should have or could have, and uh, I think he had a, his own issues, and uh, she accepted, you know, what she could get from him, knowing he was not a perfect person. Nobody is, and uh, so that's just kind of the way she went through life, just kind of taking taking what she could get and uh, and working for what she wanted.
0: But by the late 80s, Megan decided it was time to clean up her life. She'd started going to Narcotics Anonymous in East Dallas. So committed to sobriety was Megan that Joy says she'd even sometimes show up in meetings in her pajamas. How she looked didn't matter. That she went, she believed, was vital to her continued sobriety. For years, she also worked at the Promise House, an emergency shelter in Dallas for homeless and runaway youth. Kelly says she believes Megan saw herself in the kids she was trying to help.
2: There she was, you know, didn't have much you know, she felt abandoned. You know, whether it's purposeful or not, when your parent passes away, you still feel lost. And, uh, you know, and then her dad being a busy doctor and doing his thing, and you know, I think she realized, that, you know, they need more nurturing than, than, the, uh, than we're getting these days. And uh, so that was real important to her, to for kids to feel loved and to feel like they have a safe place and they have somebody that can turn to.
0: Megan would continue to volunteer weekends at the Promise House, even after landing a great job working as a secretary at the brokerage firm then known as Smith Barney. You might remember their commercials, We Make Money the Old Fashioned Way, We Earn It. Because while her new job certainly paid the bills, Megan's passion was still working with children. As the years went by, Megan would continue to endure more hardships, while living in an apartment in Dallas, she was sexually assaulted. She was also later diagnosed with ovarian cancer requiring surgery. But through all the turmoil, she continued to be there for others. Joy, who was fighting her own drug addictions at that time, said Megan was her rock. When Joy felt things unraveling and needed to get a grip, she would call Megan.
1: Megan had a bunch of different lives, you know, like, well, you know, people that she ran around with. which just wasn't, you know, my group. You know, she had a lot of groups of people, you know. So sometimes we wouldn't see her for, you know, a while, you know. But she was always there. Like, if anything happened that was important or somebody was sick or anything, she was always there. Like, she was always on the spot.
0: Joy had been on probation when she found herself back in legal trouble after failing some drug tests. As a result, she was ordered to wear an ankle monitor and to attend a residential drug treatment program. So while Joy is waiting for a bed to open up at this facility, she had to stay almost round the clock at her apartment. And even though Megan had just moved into a new apartment in Irving, she'd often stay overnight with Joy on weekends and maybe one or two nights during the week. She stayed so often that she even brought over a new mattress she'd brought for her Irving apartment so they could sleep on it there. Now, Joy wonders if there might have been a reason that Megan didn't want to go to her own apartment.
1: I was so involved in my own mess that I never even really thought about. Why was she spending all this time over here and she got this new apartment, you know? Well, she, I, 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 I thought she was just doing it for me, you know, because when I was, you know, couldn't leave my house. You know, I was just going so crazy there, waiting for them, to, you know, for my bed to open up. So I don't know if it was... For me, or this because she didn't? She was afraid to be in the I don't know. And I, I, I just got myself in the head for not tuning into that.
0: A bed would finally open up for Joy on September 20th, 1994. Megan returned to her own Irving apartment full time. Two weeks later, she'd be dead. On the morning of October 5th, 1994, Megan never shows up for work. Tom Rowan, who would take on the role as lead investigator within days of the murder, says from the beginning, her co-workers were concerned. Her
3: work called the apartment manager. And the apartment manager, uh, they just asked, can you go check, see if she's okay? We, she didn't show up for work, and that's not like her. So they went, the apartment manager and a couple of the maintenance guys went to the apartment.
0: Doors locked. So these apartment employees find Megan's front door locked. And next to the front door is a sliding glass door that leads into Megan's apartment. It's locked, too. So other than through windows, this is the only entrance into and out of her apartment.
3: The most sliding glass doors back then, you could, if you knew how to do it, you could pop them up off the lock. And he jimmied it and was able to pull the curtain back. And he saw her. She's in the living room.
0: There's a lot of blood. When detectives arrive at the scene, they're met with signs of a violent struggle. Megan's body is face down on the living room floor. She's dressed in a nightgown and robe. There are no signs of forced entry into the apartment.
3: I thought, I'm looking for somebody she knows, and she let him in. And she had to know him pretty well because she wouldn't be dressed like this.
0: Bridget had clearly fought for her life based on her wounds and the condition of the apartment. During her autopsy in Dallas County, officials would count 10 sharp force injuries to her neck, her chest, as well as her left hand and wrist defensive wounds where she had obviously tried to block the knife. In addition, she had multiple blunt force injuries to her head and extremities.
3: The apartment has been ransacked. There's a lot of things turned over. There's things uh, upstairs. There's things thrown around. But you can tell that somebody was looking for something. Uh, And then we found that there was a couple of things missing. Uh, There was a VCR taken. Uh, A friend of hers i
0: recently purchased, or, um, uh, and
3: some other
0: things. On the floor, there's slices of bread. And it seems odd, but police say it appeared Megan had made her lunch the previous night and that the bread had probably just gotten knocked to the floor during the struggle or by whoever ransacked the apartment. Rowan says all evidence indicates the stabbing took place in the living room where Megan was found dead. The investigator would come back to the apartment at night time with crime scene officers who sprayed almost the entire apartment with luminol. So when luminol and hydrogen peroxide are sprayed on, say, a wall carpet or items, a chemical reaction occurs that causes blood to glow blue under ultraviolet light. It helps investigators find and be able to photograph trace amounts of blood that wouldn't be visible to the naked eye. Now this luminol revealed blood in other places of Megan's apartment. But all indications were that this was transfer blood, meaning the suspect covered in Megan's blood had walked around the apartment, leaving the traces behind when he touched something.
3: At first, I thought, well, maybe we'll get lucky and we'll get uh, a blood drop. And then we'd say, okay, the suspect may have cut himself, whoever it was, uh, and that, that that's their blood. Because that's what on crime scenes, that's what you look, sometimes look for. Um, and we didn't have any of that. But I did find blood transfer spots where whoever it was after the attack, I believe, went upstairs because I've got blood on the railing going up in a couple places, ransacked the upstairs, then came back down.
0: So when luminol is sprayed around the inside of Megan's front door, it reveals a vital clue, a partial palm print in blood. The size and height of the print leads Rowan to believe it was left by a man.
3: And it was, and it was at about I don't know the exa- exact height from the floor, but uh, it would it was be it consistent if Meg was trying to get away that they hit the door. Uh, it was a partial palm from the right hand uh, is what the what I've been told, and it was about the height where a person would have to be about five ten to six foot one if they put their arm straight out to like lock the door.
0: Now, Megan had only been living at the apartment complex a few months when she was killed. The Apple Apartments are off Walnut Hill Lane, a short drive from the now George Bush Turnpike. And she wanted an
3: apartment that faced the street because she, but ha, she had fears. She had she had been a victim of a crime previously in Dallas, and so she was thinking safety. And so she wanted an apartment that faced Walnut Hill. And at the time, that was pretty nice. It was a really nice apartment complex.
0: The sexual assault in her past had understandably left Megan scared. Joy remembers once visiting Megan at her previous apartment after the rape to find she'd had three locks placed on the front door, including one that chimed whenever the door was opened. Obviously, Megan thought facing a busy street in Irving would bring with it some added security. And that area of town, Kelly remembers, had seemed so safe.
2: She had lived in East Dallas. She had lived over in Old Cliff. She had lived in some rough neighborhoods. And that was probably one of the better neighborhoods she'd ever lived in.
0: But while Megan was safety conscious, Rowan fears her continued passion in helping others who were still in addiction's grasp may have been her downfall. Sure, clean and sober, she was no longer living the high-risk lifestyle that drug addiction can bring. But Rowan says she still hung around with people who were. And desperate drug addicts, he says, will sometimes do all sorts of things, even to friends and family. Those connections, he said, can make a murder investigation challenging because there are so many potential suspects.
3: I mean, this was a beautiful young girl who was trying to help people, who loved kids. Yes, she had her past addiction, and, but she had cleaned her act up. I think her, I think her one mistake, in my opinion, was that she was still taking in all these high-risk people. And she still thought she could help all these people. And sometimes you can't help somebody.
0: On the next Out of the Cold, Megan Beth Johns was a beautiful young woman who had overcome heartbreak, loss, and addiction and had a compassion for helping others. But when she's found brutally stabbed inside her Irving apartment on October fifth, 1994, detectives must investigate whether that compassion may have led to her death. With no arrest made... Even family members fall under suspicion by some. My sister, I
1: wouldn't kill my sister. What are you crazy? you think I killed my sister? Y'all out of your mind?
0: Out of the Cold is produced by Steve Wilson, edited by Steve Kaufman, and written and narrated by me, Deonna Boyd.